Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had, not been, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas and uh, welcome to Exilic. In particular, if it's your uh, uh, first time here, my name is Aaron and I am the... Uh, the proud father of the daughter that was picking her nose the entire time. <laughs> That's my girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome. Um, uh, so the past few weeks, we've been doing a series called Carols. And uh, the reason why we're doing this series is to think a little bit deeper about the real meaning of Christmas because... Um, you know, around this time of, of the year, it's, it's really easy just to become a little bit disenchanted with the world and uh, the cumulative effect of everything that's happened to us over the past year sort of can weigh us down as well. And so uh, we're doing a series called Carols, and so we're taking a look at different songs uh, every week to sort of uh, re-enchant our disenchanted hearts. Uh, because if the story of Christmas is really true and God became a man, uh, that is a wonder of wonders, and uh, that changes everything. And so today we're taking a look at a, uh, a carol uh, that was uh, written in 1744 by Charles Wesley called uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I want to just read the uh, first stanza for us, which can be found on page 11. And uh, it says, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Uh, what stanza one is saying is that uh, there is something that is all holding us captivity uh, and uh, hostage, and those two things are our fears and our sins. And what's so interesting about this verse is that as modern people, as we sing this song, I mean, as modern people... We should be the least fearful of any generation uh, in history, because if you think about it, we have modern technology, we have advanced security systems, uh, we have modern medicine, we have organic food, we have the internet, we have Siri, we have Alexa, we have Google. If there is any generation that shouldn't really be afraid, uh, it is our generation, and yet study after study after study shows us that we are one of the most anxious generations we are one of the most fearful generations. We are one of the most uh, worry-filled generations uh, throughout history. If you take a look at page one of your bulletin, I want to read you an excerpt from John Tyson's book, The Burden is Light. Uh, and this is what Tyson says. We have a fear of being left out, 
a fear of failure, a fear, a fear of rejection, a fear that our children will forget about us when they leave home, a fear that loved ones will leave us, that our spouses will lose interest, that our beauty will fade, that our jobs will be automated, that our food will cause cancer, that our president will spark an international war, that morality will be destroyed, that the market will crash again, that our friends will move away, that our children will drift from their faith. When we think seriously about the complexities of this particular time in history and realize all that could possibly go wrong, it is easy to let a spirit of fear grip our hearts. But fear doesn't bring freedom. Fear brings slavery. And the thing about fear is that it doesn't discriminate or prejudice uh, at all. Uh, it, it, uh, it transcends race. Uh, socioeconomic barriers. Uh, it transcends gender. Uh, fear doesn't discriminate uh, at all, and it sort of grips us, uh, as Tyson would say. Uh, in the second quote, uh, Madonna, a few years ago, she gave uh, an interview with Vanity Fair, and uh, this is what she transparently says. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And so if you take a look at uh, your fears, and we all have them, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Madonna, it was a fear of being, being mediocre. If you take a look at your fears, your fears make a trail and a path. And if you follow the trail that your fears are making, it will take you to what you're looking to as a source to rescue you from your fear. So if you have a fear of mediocrity, if you follow that trail, your source of rescue and salvation is success. If you have a fear of being lonely and single your whole life, if you follow that trail, your source of rescue and salvation is marriage. If you have a fear of being exposed because of what you're doing and you're living this sort of secret imposter life, if you follow that trail, the source of salvation and rescue for you is this perfect image. And so if you follow the fears that we all have, a fear of failure, fear of being mediocre, fear of being lonely, we're all looking to something to sort of rescue us and, and save us from the fears that uh, we all experience. But what Madonna is uh, rightly saying is that no matter what you look to, that source of salvation, it might save you for a season, but our fears have a naughty way of coming right back into our hearts and planting a home with us, within us. And so we can drive them away for a little bit, but they, for some reason, come back and plant a home within us. And so the question is, is there anything that can really cast out our fears in such a way that it doesn't come back and reside within us? Well, if you take a look at our text today, I want to read for us verses 25 and 26 of Luke chapter 2, which can be found on page 9. And in verse 25 and 26, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the, uh, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
There isn't a lot that we know about Simeon, but one of the things that uh, we can gather is that Simeon was on the older side. And when you're on the older side, you can't help but think about what's going to happen to you after you die. And so Simeon also had fears, and he was looking to something to console his fears. And the word console is used here, but the word console is not used as a verb. To console means to sort of comfort someone that is in despair. But here, uh, the word console is not used as a verb, but it is used as a noun. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel or the hope of the world. In other words, the reason why the word consolation is used as a noun is because Simeon was looking for a person. And in the next verses, we see who this person is. In verses 27 to 30, it says, Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, which means that Jesus was probably about a month and a half uh, old. Uh, and then says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory uh, of your people Israel. And here, Simeon equates this child with the salvation of the world. Now, uh, some of the more tantalizing uh, readings that we have uh, in our society are things like the 10 places you have to visit before you die, the 20 things you have to eat before you die. For Simeon, there was just one thing he wanted to do, one thing he wanted to see before he died, one thing that was on his bucket list. And that one thing was to see the Savior uh, of the world. Now, my grandmother is uh, almost 100 years old, and uh, whenever she holds my second daughter, Hayden, the one that was up here, uh, the juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition is glaring because she's nearly 100 years older because my, my second daughter is only seven months old. And you can almost imagine Simeon, this old man, holding up this baby that is only a month and a half years old approximately and thinking, the hope of the world is on this child's shoulders. And after Simeon looks at this baby, he says to God, you may now dismiss your servant. There is something about this child that cast out any fear of death. There was something at this child that brought a sense of peace that was within Simeon now. You know, one of the interesting things in the Bible is that the most frequent command that is given in the Bible is not love one another, but the most frequent command that is given in the Bible is fear not. Did you know that? There's something about his presence that casts out all fear, which is why in our call to worship today from Luke chapter 2, when the angels come to the shepherds, the first thing that they say is, fear not. I bring you great news of great joy for all people. There is something about this Savior that casts out all fear, and Simeon's hope to cast out all this fear was on this child. Now, in a secular culture that is completely devoid of God, our ultimate hope is in ourselves and in our accomplishments, if there's nothing transcendent that is out there, uh, which is why Stephen Hawking, before he died, gave a lecture at Cambridge, and in that lecture, uh, Hawking said that his fear for mankind, his fear, is that we're all eventually going to blow one another up one day. 
And so Hawking says that his hope then for mankind is that we all live on different planets. Now the problem with that is, even if we're able to live on different planets, first of all, the hope is too late for Hawking because he's dead, and chances are we will die before every, something, ever, uh, something like that ever happens. But even more than that, even if we were able to live on all these different planets, who is to say that we won't blow each other up then? Uh, there's a story about two aliens having a conversation in outer space. And the first alien says to the second, uh, the highest life form on planet Earth have developed a uh, satellite-based nuclear weapons. And so the second alien says to the first, are they uh, an emerging intelligence? And the first alien says, I don't think so because they have them aimed at one another. The problem isn't that our world is falling apart. The problem is us that are in this world. Let me read for us the final quote on the first page of our, uh, your bulletin from an article that Tim Keller wrote called When Hope and History Rhyme. Um, and this is what uh, Keller says. Silicon Valley and others maintain the idea that science and technology inevitably make the world better. Many excited voices describe a future in which the problems of aging, disease, and poverty and inequality are all solved or transformed. On the other hand, the old hopefulness about the future has disappeared. For the first time, Americans are saying that their children's lives probably will not be better than their own, which is why it's not unusual for people to say, I don't know if I want to have kids. Also, a remarkable number of recent films depict a dystopian future in which civilization is largely decimated. There is pessimism among many that technology is removing our privacy, dehumanizing us, and making us vulnerable to future terrorism and to exploitation on an unprecedented scale. The problem here isn't science and technology. I would never want to live in a world where there is no internet. The problem is the people that are using the science and technology. The problem is us. And so our hope cannot ultimately, ultimately be in ourselves when we are our own worst enemies. In religion, religious people tend to look to their behavior to rescue them. Uh, and so in one of the more uh, classic Christmas movies like Home Alone 2, uh, there's a scene where Kevin is walking around Central Park and uh, he meets this um, bird lady who has pigeons all over her. And she says to him, what are you doing alone on Christmas Eve? Did you do something wrong? And so Kevin says, lots of things. And so she says to him, well, it's Christmas Eve, and good deeds erase bad deeds. And so Kevin says, well, it's getting late. I don't know if I have enough time to do good deeds to erase all my bad deeds. And so she says, well, because it's Christmas Eve, good deeds count extra tonight. And that's a good picture of what religion is like. In religion, your good deeds can erase your bad deeds, or you're rewarded if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. But in Christianity, your good deeds don't erase your bad deeds, nor are you rewarded if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds as if you could do the, that anyway. In Christianity, our ultimate hope is in the good deeds and in the good works of Jesus Christ. Now, here is the question. Who is he? What is he like? And why should our hope ultimately be in him? Well, there's an obscure verse in verse 34 and 35 in our passage and in verse 34 and 35, uh, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
This child is destined to cause a falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of uh, many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What Simeon is saying here, uh, especially in that phrase, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What Simeon is saying in this passage is that there is something about Jesus that is the greater Myers-Briggs test, the greater Enneagram, the greater Strength Finders test. There's something about him that exposes us for who we really are. Why do we take tests like the Myers-Briggs? Because we want to get to know ourselves better. And the reason why we all want to get to know ourselves better is because we are strangers to ourselves, in particular to the dark uh, side of our hearts. There is something about us that is estranged from our blemishes, estranged that we can't see our, our faults and our mistakes. Um, someone once said, um, uh, you know, when they make a mistake and they want to apologize to another person, what uh, people usually say are things like, sorry, I don't know what came over me. The truth is nothing came over you, something came out of you. And so in many ways, our hearts are like a sewage plate. A sewage plate on the surface is fine, but if you were to uncover the sewage plate, you would see all the sewage and the filth that is in your heart. And that is similar to every single one of us. If you were to lift the lid of your heart, you would see the sewage and the grime that is there. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, my buddies and I were playing basketball, and we were, there was just three or four of us, and so we were just on one side of the court. And Michael, that kid in everyone's class that is ostracized, um, sort of a, a, a social pariah, uh, he comes and starts playing on the other court. And we're playing with this uh, guy named Paul who's a grade older than us, and Paul yells out, Yo, Mike, come over here. And Mike turns around, and I immediately see fear in his eyes. He says, yo, Mike, come over here. And so Mike uh, sort of struts like a pigeon toward, uh, 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 like a bird towards us. And uh, Paul says to him, uh, take off your shoe. And so with any semblance of dignity that is left, uh, Mike takes off his shoe. And... Um, uh, he resists, but he eventually takes it off. And uh, Paul says to him, now lick it. And seeing that there was three or four of us and just one of him, he licks the bottom of his shoe. But because he did it so easily and so cooperatively and didn't whet our appetites enough, Paul says, do it again. And then he says, but this time, do it sexy. And so Mike slowly licks the bottom of his shoe. And you just see tears filling his eyes. And he runs off, and we just start cracking up. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that moment because it was the first time I realized that this kid with perfect attendance had a dark passenger that resided within him. It was the first time I was awakened to the fact that there is a dark side to my heart. So where is the hope for someone like me? And where is the hope for someone like you? Well, we see that actually in this verse because when the Savior comes, 
He doesn't come just to reveal the thoughts of our wicked hearts, but he also says something very strange. He gives a prophecy to Mary, and he says to Mary that your own soul will be pierced. Now, what does that mean? What he's saying is that this child is going to undergo excruciating suffering so that you as a mother will be agonized. Now, here's a question. Simeon celebrating the hope of the world, the salvation of the world. Why is he then giving a prophecy that this child will suffer? Babies aren't born to die. Babies are born to live a full life. So why a prophecy like this? Well, I like the song, Hark, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, when it says, born that no more that man may die. And the reason why Jesus was born was in order to die. To die for what? To die for us, to die in our place, and to die for our sins. In Christianity, our hope is not in ourselves. It is not in our moral performance. In Christianity, our hope is in a person. And on the cross, in order to release us from our sins and our fears, Jesus intentionally shackles himself and enchains himself on a cross to receive the judgment that we all deserve. Religion is not the opium of the people. The opium of the people is believing that there is no accountability for our actions after we die. That's the opium of the people. We are all accountable to God if there is one. But even though we are accountable, accountable to God, all of our sins, all of our flaws, all of our mistakes are still forgiven so that no matter what you have done, no matter how you think and the thoughts that you don't want to be exposed, the secret life that you, you might be living, the way that you may have hurt other people, no matter what you have done, you are forgiven because on the cross, Jesus takes on our imperfect resumes and he gives us his perfect resume. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians when he says, for your sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And when you realize that you are a beloved child of God, whose sins are all forgiven, and that this is your true identity, what else do you need to fear? When you are accepted by God, why do you have to fear rejection? When you are successful in his eyes because of the work of his son, why do you have to fear failure? Why do you have to fear being single and alone when God's presence is with you? There is nothing that we need to fear because perfect love casts out all fear. And we see that perfect love displayed on the cross, which is why the very first stanza, the last line of our song, for come that long expected, Jesus says, let us find our rest in thee. St. Augustine, the North African theologian, said that if we find our rest in anything else, we will be restless. It is only when we find our rest in the person of Jesus Christ that we'll fully experience the rest that we all need in the midst of our restlessness. Uh, so let me, let me close with this. Uh, Colonel James Irwin uh, was the eighth man that landed on the moon and walked on the moon. And Irwin said before he passed that uh, God walking on earth is even more important than man walking on the moon. The universe is not a room without doors. The universe is a room 
with a door and someone has come in and he has come in to save us. And so this Christmas, instead of focusing what's under the tree, let's focus on the one who hung on the tree for us to release us from all of our sins and all of our fears because in Christ you are forgiven and in Christ you are a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, I know that uh, uh, this time of year is, uh, is uh, perplexing for many reasons. On the, one, on the one hand, it's a religious holy day. On the other hand, it's also a secular holiday. And uh, it's not unusual to hear Christmas songs even at the stores that we shop at. And so it is my prayer that uh, we would not let anything hijack uh, the meaning of Christmas uh, this season, but you would help us to really remember uh, what this season is all about. And I fully recognize that uh, there are some here that do not know who you are, uh, some here that perhaps might be skeptical, uh, some here that might be uh, doubtful. Uh, and so it is my prayer that, uh, uh, that you would help us to have a spirit of openness, uh, uh, an intellectual pursuit, and uh, Lord, that you would awaken us uh, to the glorious good news of what your son has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.